All right. Well, officially now, welcome y'all to uh, to our next class in the prayer book catechism. I think this is week five, I believe, um, and we're we're continuing on in the office of instruction. Um, specifically, we're going to be looking at what the second office of instruction today says about sacramental theology. It occurred to me um, earlier today that I had promised to look up the passage with the seven, um, uh, seven full gifts of the spirit. And, and, but then it occurred to me that actually we did, we did finish discussing that because um, Randy did find it was the Isaiah passage and that's exactly where it comes from is. So we, we, I won't hang out on that anymore. Um, we'll, we'll go straight to the office of instruction. So we're on page 292, page 292. And it begins, oh, and so before we pop into that, we just as a reminder, we did end with discussing um, confirmation, how confirmation historically in the Western church would lead then to the Lord's Supper. Um, and we talked a little bit about how that's not always the case now. Sometimes the Lord's Supper comes first uh, nowadays, um, but, but, but uh, we, yeah, we don't need to get into too much more of that unless y'all really want to. Instead, let's pop into 292 with the kind of getting into some of the nitty gritty of the questions on the sacraments. Um, it does start here that there's another hymn. So this is a good, this was a good break point um, before the minister proceeds with the questions on the sacraments. So it begins, how many sacraments hath Christ ordained in his church? Answer, Christ hath ordained two sacraments only as generally necessary to salvation, that is to say, baptism and the supper of the Lord. We've talked about this before, the, the two and seven distinction, which was a really big deal at the time of the Reformation. Um, and you'll find that within Anglicanism, there's some folks that really like to hang out on the two, some folks like to hang out on the seven. Generally, your evangelicals hang out with the two more kind of kind of uh, keeping to our historic post-Reformation patterns. Um, your Anglo-Catholics will tend to um, really emphasize the seven, and sometimes it'll turn into really um, more heat than light discussions on and arguments about two versus seven. Um, the 79 prayer book uh, does include all seven, but it makes this distinction between the sacraments of the gospel or the dominical sacraments and the sacraments of the church or ecclesiastical sacraments. And um, they, they were trying to kind of, kind of be, you know, kind of, kind of do a good Anglican via media on that. And, and I think there was some wisdom to that as much as I tend to be critical of uh, some of that, what happened in the 79 prayer book and, and kind of some of those liturgical changes. Um, that's not a, there was some wisdom there and here's kind of how it goes um again we talked about this before but but just to just to just to review a little bit um part of what's going on is that narrow definition of sacrament as far as um uh the reformers were concerned so um you know notice the question here was how many sacraments hath christ ordained in his church so this is so um specifically the ones that that jesus commanded and um it's yeah i mean it's it's very clear that that of the seven traditional sacraments in the western church 
only baptism and the Lord's Supper are those that um, were commanded specifically by Christ. And in fact, um, also we would say that they're, they're the only ones that are generally necessary for salvation. The idea being that the promises that God gives us in salvation are tied up to the things signified in those sacraments in a way that is just not for the others. Um, that said, we do see that the, the other five, uh, that uh, like the articles of religion say that are so-called sacraments, <laughs> sacraments so-called or however it phrases it, um, are rites that we do see in some form or another in the church in the very beginning, um, but they don't have the same nature as the other two. Again, Christ ordained and um, tied up with our salvation, that connection with our salvation. The other five being um, confirmation, holy orders, uh, confession and absolution, anointing of the sick, and holy matrimony. And, and so that's, that's, that's where we go with that. Um, if you ever want to really see a nice balanced Reformation era approach to that two versus five question, uh, um, John Jewell, who's most famous for a work called um, uh, uh, The Apology for the Church of England, basically he was making the case for the reform, you know, post-Reformation Church of England's Catholicity, and in fact, making the case that, that as, as he was putting forth, that it was more Catholic than, than the Romans at that time. Um, he has another treatise that where he, where he does talk about the sacraments. It's not a very long, um, but it's, yeah, John Jewell's treatise on the sacraments. And, and he does a really good job kind of touching that um, when it comes to the other five, yes, we're, you know, they, they, they certainly are a life part of the life of the church. Um, there are good things there. And in some sense, we could even say that there's grace tied up with those five, but they're just not quite of the same level as baptism and the Lord's Supper, because again, Christ's ordinance with those two and that tying to, to salvation. Um, I'll open up for questions, comments in just a second, but I want, I want to push forward just a little bit in these questions before we do that. And the next question being, what do you mean by this word sacrament? That's important to, to define terms, right? I mean by this word sacrament, an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace given unto us, ordained by Christ himself as a means whereby we receive this grace and a pledge to assure us thereof. So again, that narrow definition from the reformers of sacrament, um, outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace ordained by Christ himself. And he uses this sign as a way of conveying that grace, that, in, that inward invisible spiritual grace. He uses that physical sign to, as a means of giving us that grace and also as an assurance of the grace. So um, if you're doubting your salvation, how do you know you've been saved? Well, um, a, you're baptized, B, you're asking the question, right? Um, you know, how, how do you know that you've been united with Christ? Well, you're partaking of him in the Lord's Supper, you know, that sort of thing. So the, the, the sacraments being pledges of that grace given. And then um, before we open up, how many parts are there in a sacrament? There are two parts in a sacrament, the outward and visible sign 
and the inward and spiritual grace. Okay, so let's let's stop there. Um, questions, comments on that before we get into the specific outward and visible sign and inward and spiritual grace of the Lord's Supper and baptism. Okay. Okay, I think I see Tina. Could you remind me what the other five are? I was looking at my notes trying to find them and I don't remember. Oh, sure, sure. Okay, um, in, in no particular order. Uh, confirmation, um, anointing of the sick, holy matrimony, holy orders, and confession and absolution. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, well, let's push on then talking about um, the, uh, the specifics here. What is the outward and visible sign or form in baptism? And the answer is the outward and visible sign or form in baptism is water, wherein the person is baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. What is the inward and spiritual grace in baptism? The inward and spiritual grace in baptism is death unto sin and a new birth unto righteousness, whereby we are made the children of grace. And let's stop right there before we get into the next part. Um, okay, so, so two things necessary for it to be, in terms of its form, a valid baptism. One, you need water, obviously. Two, it needs to be in, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, or the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Um, yeah, so I don't think anybody kind of tries to baptize in anything other than water. I mean, that just, that just isn't, doesn't, isn't what happens. Sometimes you will find in charismatic circles, they're going to want to make a distinction between baptism in water and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, if, you know, we, we looked at this not too long ago, but in our, in our, in our baptismal rite, it's pretty clear that, you know, the, the baptism of the Spirit comes with <laughs> baptism in, in, in water. It's, it's not two separate events. Um, and some of the reason why we, we see a couple things going a little bit different in Acts is, uh, there, there's some interesting details to that, you know, one issue is, uh, we, you know, we get the, the passage, I'm going to, I'm going to look this up while I'm talking, um, where Paul arrives and he, um, you know, asked, asked them about the Holy Spirit and they basically said, um, what are you talking about? We've never even heard about the Holy Spirit. And then he says, okay, then what were you baptized into? They said, well, we were baptized um, with John's baptism. And um, in that text, Paul baptizes them again, because if you don't know about the Holy Spirit, you can't be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, right? Um, so they, they, were not, they were not properly baptized in the first place. They were not properly um, catechized, they did not receive the, the sacrament of baptism. That also goes to show that, um, that, that, uh, baptism, um, that John's baptism is not the same as Christian baptism. It's, it's kind of the antecedent. It's the, um, kind of beginning of it, but it's not, it's not the same. And then there is another one where, where you do see some people, manifesting the gifts of the Holy Spirit prior to their baptism. In particular, we think of Cornelius, the first, you know, the first Gentile convert, and a couple other places. That's not normative, but God can do that. 
<laughs> you know? <laughs> so, I mean, that's, 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 um, you know, that, that, that certainly is something that, that can happen. Um, you know, kind of in later sacramental theology, we would, we would say something to the effect of that, um, you know, they, they had had a baptism of desire, even if they hadn't yet received the actual sacrament. So, um, which is just a fancy way of saying God sometimes does things differently. <laughs> I mean, that's really all that, that's really all that's saying, you know, that's, and, and, and really that, that comes into kind of the hypothetical, you know, okay, what if someone's converted, they're on their way, um, you know, they're, they're in the process of being catechized, they're, they're on their way to getting baptized, they get hit by a bus, you know, you know, yeah, God, God's not, God's not, his hands aren't tied um like that um you know these are these are what god does it's not about what we do um so okay so there, there's that um now there there is some question in some circles about that trinitarian formula there are um some some groups of christians that don't baptize in the in the, in the trinitarian formula and almost every single one of them i can't think of a counterexample to this um, as far as I can think, every single one of them has serious problems with their Trinitarian theology. Take, for example, Oneness Pentecostals. You know, Oneness Pentecostals will only baptize in the name of Jesus. But yeah, that's because they don't believe that the three persons of the Trinity are distinct. You know, they're, 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 they're what we call modalists. They think that, um, um, you know, God's just kind of changing roles or, or wearing a different hat and manifest in, in three in those different ways, rather than there being distinct persons. So, you know, in their mind, Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Holy Spirit. So, you know, that that's kind of a typical example. And and while we generally would not rebaptize um, folks that were that were baptized from other other Christian denominations, um, you know, a oneness Pentecostal, we certainly would. And that's, that's, by the way, not, that's not all Pentecostals. That's a particular little group of Pentecostals that, um, you know, just, they just have some, some problematic, um, basic the theological problems. Uh, so, so that's kind of the way that would go. Um, sometimes, especially when you're dealing with the non-denominational world, you may have been baptized and you weren't really sure if they actually used the Trinitarian formula. Um, we have what we call conditional baptism in that case. Okay, if you weren't, <laughs> if you weren't already baptized, we're baptizing you, you know, kind of thing. Um, so and that, that's, that, that's, 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 a, that's a thing. Um, you know, we had at the parish ages back, um, a woman who had um, grown up in the Jehovah's Witnesses. Later on, she, when she really came to the Lord, I mean, the Jehovah's Witnesses, again, they don't have um, you know, their, their, their basic Christology and, and Trinitarian theology is, is completely abhorrent, aberrant. I mean, they're, they're not Christians by creedal standards. Um, she later came to the Lord and was part of, you know, various non-denominational groups. And she wasn't, she couldn't remember because it'd been so long ago, whether she was baptized only with the Jehovah's Witness or if she had been baptized um and that later non-denominational world and if so was it <laughs> did they just baptize in the name of jesus or did they they baptize with the trinity and so when she was baptized you know she was baptized at all saints um conditionally <clears throat> so okay so that's that um the inward spiritual grace being 
death to sin, new birth unto righteousness, and we are made children of grace. So um, baptism is that means of grace, but the grace there is that death to sin, new birth, and you become children of grace. I, I'm, you know, not to not to keep hammering this home, but um, the point here is that that that's something that God is doing, and that the the sacrament is a sign of what God is doing. Um, it's not something that we're doing out of obedience; rather, it's something that God is doing, and the sacrament is that is the way that He's doing that. That's that's the way we would look at this. Okay. Um, any, any, uh, any, anything before we move on and continue to unpack this? Okay, if something pops up, just, just pop on in. Okay, what is required of persons to be baptized? Repentance, whereby they forsake sin, and faith, whereby they steadfastly believe in the promises of God um, to them in that sacrament. You know, and whenever you see faith, think of it as a synonym of trust, right? Um, you know, there's this mistaken view that uh, Protestants see faith as the one work that saves us. That's not no faith, faith is <laughs> faith is not a work of ours. It's a gift of God. Any more than um, you know you're doing something when you accept <laughs> accept a gift, right? Um, but but think of faith, faith. Faith faith and trust are pretty synonymous. So you can always substitute trust. If you want to really clarify things, and then repentance being, you know, as it says here, for, um, whereby they forsake their sins, we have two concepts in repentance. Um, the Hebrew concept of the Old Testament is to turn around. You're turning away from your sins. You're turning to God. You're turning to righteousness. Uh, the Greek concept is kind of rethinking. You know, you're you're um, the way we have it in in, in the New Testament. Um, you know, you've you've been you know, you're changing your mind, basically, right? And and both of those really give us the full picture biblically of of repentance. It's not one against the other, but yeah, we're 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 changing our mind about our sin, where we're we're turning away from our sins, we're turning to God. Um, you know, that renewal of your mind as well, that sort of thing. The next question: why then are infants baptized when by reason of their tender age they cannot perform them? Okay. Yeah, little baby, can they show signs of repentance? You know, can they show signs of faith? Um, well, no. <laughs> you know, you, you, you can ask them this catechism and they're not going to respond at all. They might just cry at you, right? Well, the answer here is because by the faith of their sponsors, infants are received into Christ's church, become the recipients of his grace, and are trained in the household of faith. Um, you know, we're, yeah. This is, this is not just about an individual, right? This is about the community of faith. This is about the family of God. And just as children were brought into the old covenant um, by circumcision, um, we can bring children into the new covenant by baptism. And the sponsors, so that's the parents and the godparents, are making these vows on their part. And part of those vows is that they're going to be trained in the household of faith. And what happens at their confirmation is that these children um, renew those promises that were made on their behalf and um, really kind of internalize it, right? 
Uh, so, so that's 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 where that goes. And in terms of you know whether or not infants can show faith, um, you know we have some biblical examples of this, right? Um, you know we have John the Baptist is visibly showing when he's in his mother's womb that he recognizes his savior. Um, you know we have Psalm fifty one. Um, where the psalmist says, you know, before you, you know, you, you formed me in your womb, you knew me. Um, you know, I, I basically, I, I was, <laughs> I was following, following you even when I was hanging upon my mother's breast, even as a toddler, as an infant. Um, you know, we have Jeremiah. Um, you know, I called you before, before you were born. You know, kind of stuff. So um, we we see these examples that a a tender age and, and, and therefore a tender, um, you know, ability to reason or whatever is not a barrier to, to the family of God. It's not a barrier to faith. And that's the same true with those that are, that are mentally disabled. Um, you know, that, that, that might be kind of mentally the same age as a little child. Um, you know, they can still have faith that's appropriate to that, to that level. Um, you know, we, we, would, we would by no means turn away, you know, somebody, somebody from the church just because they were, were, were severely mentally impaired. Um, yeah, so that, that's, that's, the way, that's the way that goes. Um, and one, one final thing, I think I've mentioned this before. So this is, so, you know, hammering home some stuff. But um, I'm reminded uh, um, N.T. Wright, who, who's a, who is an, a bishop in the Church of England, you know, in a, in a speech, I heard um, him say, you know, okay, how, how old does a child have to be before they know their mother or their father? You know, I mean, that happens very, very young, instantaneously. You know, why would, why would that be different for our Heavenly Father? Um, is it immature? Absolutely. Should it grow? Absolutely. But does, it, does that mean it's not real? No. Okay. All right, that's the that's the end of the, the section on baptism. Um, questions, comments on that? Okay. Well, we have about five minutes, so um, are we? I'm okay with popping into the into the Lord's Supper a little bit. Maybe 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 pushing this one a little bit. Um, we, but we will not finish that, um, probably. So we, we can, we can start on the Lord's Supper, then finish it out next week. And we might even finish the whole thing next week. If not, it'll definitely be the week after that. George. Father Isaac, I'm sorry I'd back up a little bit, but I meant to yeah. ask, does the Anglican Church endorse infant baptism more or less than teenage or you know uh understandable age sure um so it it, it would depend on the context right so um in, in a context like we uh where most of the people at the church are um people that had been raised in the faith you know then then what we would see most often would be infant baptism when you're in a situation where there's a lot of new converts, so whether it's a missionary situation, um, you know, like, like would have happened however many years ago in our, in our mother church in Nigeria, 
um, or just in a situation where you're in a, in a, just surrounded by, by, by pagans, <laughs> you're going to see a lot more adult baptisms. Um, you know, at All Saints, it is very much a kind of church that is, that is better at equipping immature believers than it is. It's just that the nature of our services are really designed more to equip believers. Um, and so we've, we've always seen more infant baptisms because of that. Okay. Um, you know, sometimes you'll hear, you'll hear missionaries say that you, you, you really can only tell growth by adult baptisms. I, I, I completely disagree with that with all due respect to my friends who say that. And it's not just because we do more infant baptisms at All Saints, but because just statistically, you grow the church by raising, by having babies and raising them as Christians. I mean, that's the fastest. The church grows exponentially when Christians are having babies and raising them as Christians. Um, missionary situations um, are, are, are good sources of growth, but um, when it comes to real stability and, and stable growth in the church, just statistically speaking, it's, it's families. And, and so um, that's a very important role of the church. New converts are super important. And, and um, we ought to, both as a parish and as a, as, do, as a denomination, as an archdeaconry, all that sort of thing, um, kind of have some strategies for reaching those who, who are unreached. But our primary parish responsibility is to our families. So that's, that's, that's my take anyway. <laughs> Good, thank you. Yeah. And I, I think with that, actually, I'm not going to move on to the Lord's Supper, but um, I, I, oh, I see, I see another hand. Okay. What's up, Aspen? I think that's Aspen. It's hard to see. It is. Um, so I have a question. For John the Baptist, if everybody had to get re-baptized when they were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, why did he baptize in the first place? Like, I know he did the whole, like, preparing the way for Jesus and the increase, decrease thing of John 3.30, but, like, why get, have to get baptized twice? Even sure, okay. The first one didn't count, but, like, it seems confusing. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's an awesome question. Okay, so, um, yeah, the primary purpose of John's ministry is one of preparation. And he's and, and remember he's preparing people that are already for the most part in covenant with God because you know they're they're the Jewish people right he's we do see some of the Roman soldiers and everything hey there brute we do see some Roman soldiers and, and stuff coming to him but by and large he's preaching to and, and ministering to uh, the people of Israel so um, his 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 baptism is very much one of preparation and what we do see is that like you said. When Jesus comes on the scene, he's, he's doing this less and less and less. Um, and, and there seems to be kind of a transition period, right, where, where Jesus' ministry is moving forward. Um, John's is, um, is, is decreasing. And at the end of, in, in John chapter 3, um, we do see, you know, the apostles doing some Christian baptize, baptizing right after um, Nicodemus, um, the Nicodemus story. The, ne the, the next passage right after Nicodemus shows 
um, Jesus and the apostles baptizing. And then in John 4, it clarifies, well, Jesus wasn't really doing it, it was the apostles. But so we do see this beginnings of actual Christian baptism. Uh, and probably my favorite theory, I'm not sure if that's the right way. Um, you know, th there's a question as, to, as far as John's baptism, what exactly is going on, right? Because we do see ritual washings, baptisms, if you, if you like, in the Old Testament. But largely those are related to issues of ceremonial cleanliness, ceremonial uncleanliness, or um, by the second temple period. So by the first century, we do see um, old covenant baptisms for the purpose of conversions, right? We have um, pagans who were converting to Judaism. And that was a big deal, by the way, in the first century. Um, it's not as big of a deal um, you know, really since then, but in the first century, we do have a lot of proselytes as they would, they would call them, you know, people that convert. And we even have some people that kind of, they're following the God of Israel, but they're not really ready for full conversion. And that's Cornelius and Acts was one of those guys. They, they call them God fears. But when people would go through full conversion, they would also get baptism. But it, but it's pretty clear that that's not what John's doing. You know, he's not, this is not a ritual issue of ritual purity. This is not an issue of conversion. So what's going on? Well, my, my favorite kind of theory, and it was just kind of floated as a possibility in this work, comes from Alfred Edersheim's 19th century Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. Um, I, I don't think I've talked about Edersheim in a long time. So those of y'all that remember um, when I used to talk about Edersheim a lot more, my apologies. Um, Edersheim was a, a um, convert from Judaism. He was actually trained as a rabbi and he eventually becomes a Church of England minister um, as he moves to England and, and, and you know, converts, becomes a Christian. And his main work is this huge tome that's called Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And really, probably until Pope Benedict's work from just within the last 10, 15 years, last 20 years, maybe, I don't know, um, which was called Jesus of Nazareth or something like that. With until Pope Benedict's work, Edersheim's really was kind of the definitive, multi-volume, in-depth biography of what's going on um, contextually, culturally in, in, in the gospel stories. So he gives backgrounds on all the different kinds of Judaisms. Um, you know, he, he talks about the, the, the different relationships between the apostles, their families, Jesus' family, that sort of thing. But he, he postulates that, um, that the parallel with John's baptism may have been similar to how Moses had all the people, all the, all the men, especially, it might have been all the people, in Exodus 18, 19, somewhere in there, um, just before he, he went up to receive the law on Mount Sinai, he had them purify themselves in bathing and then and and refrain from from any sexual relations um and edersheim's theory is that john's baptism may have been similar it may have been this this um parallel with what moses was doing just like moses was going to be bringing the very words of god to the people so they needed to prepare by baptism um, and, and, and abstaining from, from sexual relations. 
um, that, jo that John the Baptist was doing something similar with, with his ritual washing um, to prepare the people to receive the word made flesh. That's probably my favorite answer. Um, it's, it's, but it's a, it's a question that, that, that we don't have definitive answers to, um, except for that we know that it was a preparatory thing. Okay, because I was just confused because I know one of the Old Testament prophecies and I cannot remember which one, but I just, it was specifically about why Jesus got baptized by John and it was to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy. So I was like, did he just baptize them so that it was already prepared for when Jesus came to get baptized or was like, it had to be done before Jesus could start baptizing people? Like, what was the deal? So that makes more sense. Yeah, and then that's another big question. Why, why did Jesus have to be baptized? You know, he does say to fulfill all righteousness. Um, when I've talked about this in the past, and usually this comes, this comes during, I think, the third week of Epiphany or the second week of Epiphany, because that's our gospel passage. Um, my, and again, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, theories floated as to what that means, you know, fulfilling all righteousness, because we don't have a specific Old Testament prediction about that. All we have is Jesus saying it's to fulfill all righteousness. And what seems best to me is that what's going on is that Jesus, who doesn't need to repent, is in his baptism, part of what's going on anyway, is that he's identifying with those of us that do need to repent. Now, he's taking that He's taking that um, identify, yeah, he's, he's identifying with us sinners because he's going to be taking all of, all of our sins on him. Um, another one is that, another, another idea there is that um, it was the way to kick off Jesus's ministry. Um, you know, certainly we, we see that, that manifestation of the three persons of the Trinity, one of the best Trinitarian passages, um, you know, so, so things like that. But when John's like, yeah, um, I need to be baptized by you. <laughs> Why are you getting baptized by me? You know, John had a point there, you know, <laughs> but Jesus just knew better. All right. Anything, anything else? We, we are going to go ahead and, uh, and hear if there's, if there's, uh, unless there's other, other questions, comments, and then next week we'll dig into the Lord's Supper and probably the following week, if not next week, we will, we will end the offices of instruction. Uh, Father Isaac, I was wondering if I could just make a comment about John the Baptist. Sure. Uh, real, real quick. Uh, is, uh, I, I taught GED classes, and one time I had an Iranian or a family from Iran that was there, and they were part of a group that followed John the Baptist. Uh, in, wow. Yeah, that's that. Wow. You that's know, amazing. I don't know if you ever heard it. I'd never heard of that before, but they were actually with a group, and they were being persecuted, evidently, in Iran, and that's one of the reasons they were able to leave Iran and, you know, come to the States. But I, it was interesting because it was easy to uh, evangelize or share Christ. He said, well, you know, you know why John the Baptist came. <laughs> but anyway, wow, you, I've you never have, heard of that. A, like a, a moment from Acts right there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, anyway, I thought that was interesting. I'd never heard of a group, but they were, 
they were from a group for centuries had been following John the Baptist. Wow. I, I knew that they, that, that, that the John groups had, had lasted much longer than one would have expected, but I didn't realize they lasted that long. It's probably like how the Samaritans are just a super small, small group. Yeah. Um, you know, and we, we, we got to see from a great, great distance, um, the Samaritan temple when we were, when we were there about a year ago, um, up on Mount Gerizim and th- yeah, they still do, um, a, the old Testament ceremonial things, uh, you know, from, from the Torah itself, um, exactly the way the Torah says, I mean, they, they're, you know, like the way things were being done in Jesus day would have seemed super innovative to those guys. Um, I mean, that's, that's how, that's how, that's how they roll. Yeah. But very, very interesting. Very that's, that's really yeah. neat. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and stop the recording. Um, God bless you all. And thank you for joining us. Mm-hmm.